All right, opening your Bibles tonight to the book of Mark, chapter number 6. Mark, chapter number 6. This morning, we were in Mark, chapter number 5. And we saw what God had done in the life of a man that we now call the maniac of Gadara. And uh, we saw God's miraculous power, but tragically, we saw that the gatherings, the people of Gadara, when they had a choice between the swine or the Savior, they prayed Him to depart out of their coast. Tonight, I want to preach to you on another group of people uh, that equally as tragic had trouble uh, listening to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And uh, I hope this is a blessing and a help to you this evening. I'm going to try to preach quick. And uh, I hope the Lord will use it in your heart and in your life. Mark chapter number 6, I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. Read just a few verses here. The Word of God says, And he went out from thence and came into his own country. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. Many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? What wisdom is this which is given unto him? that even such mighty works are wrought by His hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? And are not His sisters here with us? And they were offended at Him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could do there, oh, this, this troubles me. And he could do there, he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. Let's pray together tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you've done in our hearts and lives. I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us in a particular way. Thank you for the service this morning, the way that you helped me and encouraged me, Lord, and dealt with me, and I trust with many others as well. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for Calvary. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Notice again with me, verse number 4, Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. Now this morning we studied about the Gadarenes and how that they, when faced with the magnificent power of God in the life of this maniac that was hopeless and helpless, uh, that they had seen the power of God. But there was a problem. Jesus, when He ran out the devils, He also ran out their swine, which didn't belong there in the first place anyway. They as Jews, according to Leviticus chapter number 11, uh, weren't uh, supposed to be eating swine. They weren't supposed to be touching swine. They weren't supposed to be anywhere near swine. And uh, so uh, what did Christ do? He ran the sin out of their lives, and that upset them. They had a choice. Do we want our swine, or we might say our sin, or do we want the Son of God in our midst? You know, friend, that's the choice you and I have today. Do we want our sin more than we want the Son of God in our lives? Do we want our sin more than we want the power of God in our lives? More than, hey, do we want our sin more than we want revival? Do we want our sin more than we want to see souls saved? You know, there's a lot of folks, it's not that they don't want to see revival. It's not that they don't want to see souls saved. It's not that they don't want Christ in their life. They just don't want that more than they want their sin. And so they stay in the same shape, in the same situation, Sunday after Sunday, month after month, year after year, and sad to say it, but decade after decade, because they love their sin too much. But here in Mark chapter 6, we find a different group of people. Jesus goes back to Nazareth. 
And you would think that he would receive the hero's welcome, wouldn't you? Here he's been uh, going around the entire countryside. He's been healing. He's been working. He's been making known uh, that he is the Messiah which was prophesied to come. And you would think that if there was any group of people that would give him a warm welcome home, you'd think it'd be in his hometown, in his home country, amongst his own kin. But the Bible says in verse number 4 that a prophet is not without honor. In other words, he has honor everywhere he goes but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. I want to preach to you this evening on the danger of familiarity. You know, the old saying goes, familiarity breeds what? Contempt. You know that there is nothing wrong with being no stranger to the house of God. We ought to be in the house of God. We ought to be faithful. We ought to be faithful to the Word of God. We ought to be faithful in our prayer life. We ought to be faithful in witnessing. We ought to be faithful in giving. We ought to be faithful in every fast of our life. The Bible says it's required in a steward. It's not recommended in a steward. It's required in a steward that a man be found faithful. We ought to be faithful. Do you know, even in our faithfulness, there's a danger. You find it in the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. You find that one of the sons came, the younger son, and he said, I want my inheritance. I want to live my life my way. And so his father divided unto him his inheritance. The Bible says he went into a far country and he spent it all on riotous living. He went and lived what uh, the world would call the good life. He blew every dime that his daddy gave him, wound up in the hog pen. And people have said he wound up eating the hog's food. No, he didn't wind up eating the hog's food. The Bible says he fain would have filled his belly with the husk of the swine. He didn't even have enough money to buy the, the husk of the swine. He had nothing to his name. He had been left hopeless and helpless and abandoned by the world. But do you know that there was more hope for him than there was for the other brother? Because there was an older brother, Luke chapter 15 says, who had stayed home. And he had stayed home. But listen, even being at home, we find that his heart had wandered far. And so the brother comes home. We know the story, friend. We've heard it. We've preached it. We've sang about it. We've taught it. He's coming down the road. The father's standing there. I don't know if they had front porches back then, but if there did, that's where he was. And he was looking down the driveway. He seen him coming, and he ran to him. And uh, the Bible says fell on him and kissed his neck, put a ring on his finger, put a robe on his shoulders, uh, put new shoes on his feet, slayed the fatted calf. You say, how'd they have a fatted calf? He is fattening up a calf for when that son came home. Can I say to you, it, listen, it's discouraging when you've got loved ones or friends or family members or co-workers that you're praying for, but you just keep fattening up the calf and praying because one of these days God will get a hold of them. That's what we see happen in this young man's life. The Bible says that he comes home and uh, he uh, tries to say his plan. <laughs> you know, I like it when God interrupts our plan. He says, well, I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell my daddy that I'm no longer worthy to be called a son. I'll just be a servant and I'll live in the servants' quarters. You know, the daddy, he couldn't even get that out because the daddy was kissing him too much. He couldn't even get that out before the Lord had already, or before his father had put a robe on him and put a ring on him. That's just how God is, you know. Sometimes we think we're going to have to do all this penance and we're going to have to suffer all this and I'm thankful. Hey, there are times that we get chastised for our sin. More often than not, can I say that the Lord has met me in the driveway uh, when it finally I came to myself and I decided I wanted to come to God. I thought I was going to have to suffer through this. I had made my bed and thought I was going to have to lie in it. And I've had to do that sometimes, but uh, more times in that, God has met me and said, no, I'm going to show you grace and I'm going to get you out of the mess that you've got yourself in. The older brother of the Bible says uh, that he was angry and he was bitter and he was jealous. Being at home is not necessarily a guarantee that your heart will be guarded. 
we find that these that were closest as far as worldly or temporal relations, those that were closest to our Lord, were the ones with whom He had the least audience with. And there's a real danger. You know, we come into the house of God and we hear the Word of God preach. We hear the songs sung. You maybe go into your study uh, area at home and you open your Bible and you begin to read it. You go into your prayer closet, wherever that is, whatever it is, and you begin to pray. There's real danger sometimes that we become so familiar with it that it just becomes habit and it quits being holy. We find in this passage, I'm just going to give it to you as quick as I know how. I want us to notice three things. The first thing we see is the return of the Savior. Here in verse number 1, the first part of it, we see Him coming home. It says, and we went out from thence and came into His own country. So He's coming home. He's coming to a place that is familiar to Him and that is familiar with Him. And uh, He's coming to a group of people that know Him. And can I say that just because we know Christ as our Savior, that does not mean there is not a risk of our lives winding, uh, winding up messed up because we've gotten out into sin. Now, I'm thankful we can never lose our salvation. Let me say that again. I'm thankful we can never lose our salvation. I'm thankful it's not our salvation, it's His salvation. I'm thankful if we put our faith in Him, He's got a hold of us. I'm not holding on to Him. There's plenty of times when I'm trying to hold on to Him, but there's plenty of times when I let go of Him too, and I'm thankful He never lets go of me. And I'm thankful we can't lose our salvation. Uh, But can I say to you that there is a sense in which we lose the power and presence of God in our life. Lose our fellowship, lose our joy. Uh, there, there's, you know, you know why the Christian life isn't fun to most people because they're not really living it. They're they're trying to look it, but they're not living it. And they've got the outward appearance, but they don't have the inward joy because they don't have the heavenward fellowship. And so they're miserable in the Christian life. They see it as a bunch of rules. Friend, when you give your heart to Christ, when you go whole hog in for Jesus Christ, you'll find it's not rules, it's not regulation, it's liberty. And you'll find that all those things that, uh, that you wanted to do, God will change your want to about them. I read a quote. You know, my wife went to that meeting up in Kentucky, at ladies' meeting, and I was looking through some of her notes, and there was a note that stuck out to me, and it said that if your ways please the Lord, you can do as you please. And, you know, a lot of times the reason we think that God has so many restrictions and things upon our life is because our desires are so carnal and worldly. We get our joy doing what the world does and then wonder why God has a problem with it. He comes to His own country, His own place, His own area. We see His coming home. But I want you to notice not only His coming home, notice His company. The Bible says, and His disciples followed Him. So we find that even though He was coming to a group of people that had grown familiar with Him, that there was a group of people that was following Him. And can I say to you that uh, sometimes we get in the habit of looking at other Christians and thinking, well, I wonder why I'm not as happy as them. I wonder why I am not, I don't have the power of God in my life the way that they do. I wonder why their prayer closet seems fruitful and mine doesn't. I wonder why they can understand the Word of God and why I can't. And could I say a lot of times it's because we've allowed familiarity uh, to soil our relationship with Jesus Christ. There was a group, <laughs> I don't know how to put it other than this. The people in Nazareth, they may, in Nazareth, they may not have been impressed with Jesus, but there was a group that was. Can I say to you that Jesus, if He don't mean much to you tonight, it ain't His problem, it's your problem, because there's a group that He means an awful lot to. 
And if He don't thrill your soul tonight, and you may say, oh, preacher, that's judgmental. Hey, I go through times in my life when I'm not where I need to be. When I preach, people say, well, if you point, you're pointing uh, four back at you. I wish I could point eight back at me. Because the fact of the matter is, I'm just as guilty of it as you are guilty of it. But, you know, a lot of times we get to thinking that Jesus is just not that impressive. He's kind of boring. We're tired of living the Christian life. Do you know when that happens? The problem is not Him. The problem is us. There is a group here that gets excited about Jesus Christ. There is a group. Listen, we may not rejoice when folks get saved, but the angels are rejoicing. We may not get excited when we see people come to an altar. Oh, but heaven gets excited when they see someone go to an altar. We may not get excited over the singing, or we may not get excited over the preaching. But don't think for one moment it's because there's nothing to get excited over. Listen, if we had even the simplest message or the simplest song, given with the, the meanest and most lowly talent, if it's about Jesus Christ, it's worth getting excited over. I mean, it's not about, listen, it's not about the presentation. Uh, it's about the content. It's not about the skill. It's about the Savior. And I'm trying to say to you tonight that though there was a crowd that when they saw Jesus, they just said, oh, it's just Jesus again. There was another crowd that was willing to follow Him everywhere He went. We see the company. But then I want you to notice the custom. Look what it says down in verse number 2. The Bible says, And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? You know what it says in Luke's account of this? In Luke chapter 4 and verse number 16, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was... He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Jesus was doing something that was customary to him. You know what that means? We use that term customary a lot. What it means is something that someone endeavors in on a consistent basis. In other words, this was routine. But for Jesus, it wasn't just routine. And could I say to you tonight that church life don't have to be boring. Church life don't have to be boring when it becomes not about the church, but about the head of the church. Church life, listen, your prayer life don't have to be boring when it becomes not just vain repetitions of words to a man that you have the opinion of that children have of Santa Claus, but when it becomes communion with a thrice holy God that hears and listens, it can be custom without being boring. This was something that Christ did all the time. You know what some of us think? I'm, I'm just being honest now. Some preachers won't be honest with you, but I'm going to be honest with you. There were some of you that woke up this morning and said, well, I guess I'll go to church again. And you woke up tonight. You say, woke up? Yeah, you took a nap like I did. And said, well, I guess I'll go to church again. Let me tell you something. That which we take so much for granted, there's people in hushed houses through secret words, giving instructions one to another of a meeting place in other countries where they can meet under persecution, under threat of their life being taken away for the privilege of what we got to get in our car and drive here to do openly before the entire world. I mean, we ought to be appreciative of the liberty that we have. We ought not take for granted. There may come a day, and I think there is a day approaching in this country, when they'll padlock places like Wall Ridge Baptist Church where they'll lock preachers like me up, where they'll lock soul winners up, where they'll uh, lock Sunday school teachers up. I think we're coming to a day in this country when it won't be as easy as getting in your car and just driving to church. Just because it's custom, that doesn't mean it has to be boring. 
And we find that he was doing what his custom was. So we see the return of the Savior. Now, I want you to notice the response of the people. Now, if you read Luke's account, you get a little bit more fuller details about this. We're not going to take the time to do that. But I want you to notice four things that this familiarity caused them to do. And you can see it in the words that they use. Look at the end of verse number 2. Now, the Bible says in Luke's account that he stands up and he speaks about a passage in the book of Isaiah that speaks of, the, of uh, you know, of wounds being bound up, of the blind having their eyes open, of the lame being raised to walk, and of the poor having the gospel preached to them. And that all sounded good to them. You know, they liked that. That sounded good. They liked to hear that. But then the Bible says that Jesus uh, ceased from speaking those words. He closed the book and he looked around and he gave them a story. He said, you know, in the Old Testament that there were many widows in the days uh, of Elias. But God didn't send Elias to any of them save one, a widow of a city by the name of Sarepta, who was a Gentile. And what he's saying to them is this. He's saying, you know, there's lots of folks in Israel that need the Messiah. But sad to say, you're going to reject him. And it's going to be the Gentiles whom the gospel is going to go to. You know, that's happened today. The Bible says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And the Jews, for the most part, have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Christianity is a Gentile thing today. That's not to say a Jew can't get saved, but where's the gospel preached? Is there a stronger gospel witness in Jerusalem or in Knoxville, Tennessee today? Is there a stronger uh, gospel witness uh, in Palestine or in the United States of America today? And we could say that at one time about Europe. We could say it about Greece, about plenty of Gentile nations. And what Christ is saying, in other words, is this. He's saying God wants to do a work, but God can't do a work because you've hardened your hearts. And when that happened, the Bible says that they were filled with wrath and they got offended. You know, familiarity breeds what? Contempt. I want you to notice four things that they did as a result of this familiarity. Notice the first thing in verse number 2. Look what they say. It says, And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? Now, what are they saying when they say these things? Well, it goes on to say this wisdom. But there as he's teaching in the synagogue, they're saying, Where did he get the power and authority to say what he's saying? They were offended not at what he had done, but at what he had said. What are they saying here? First off, familiarity can cause us to dismiss the Word of God. Listen carefully to what I'm saying tonight. It can cause us to treat the Word of God with contempt. You know that many times God has something He's trying to say to us, but uh, when we open our Bibles and read it, you know what we're thinking? Oh, I know all that. And I'm going to try and listen. You... you it, If you want to believe I'm on a soapbox, believe it tonight. But I'm not. I'm just trying to preach what the Lord's given me. But you know, even when we sit in church sometimes, and I know I'm the preacher, and I know you can look at this as I'm just trying to tout me. God knows my heart better than I do and knows I'm not. But a lot of times when we sit in a church house and we hear a sermon preached, you know what we think? I've heard that before. Well, that's not for me. A lot of times when we hear the word, listen, we'll go a lot further when we realize that it's not about the messenger, it's about the message. We'll get a lot farther when we realize it's not about whoever's standing behind that pulpit, it's about who's seated at the right hand of the Father. We'll get a lot farther when we uh, start looking for the message instead of the mistake. And we find that the first thing that it calls them to do is to say about what he's saying, where'd that come from? Where'd this wisdom that he's got come from? 
In other words, they were saying, and they were saying this about what he had said about them. By the way, do you know that preaching about generalities does not offend anyone? I can preach all day about people that aren't in this room, and it won't offend a single person. But you know, when we start to preach about sin that's right down where we're at and what we're doing, that's when we start getting a little tight about it. That's when we start getting upset and getting offended. You see, that's why I don't preach a lot of messages against sodomy. Because I would hope, and we don't know in this day that we live in, but I would hope that nobody in here is struggling with it. And it's not that I'm not against sodomy. I'm as against sodomy as the Bible is against sodomy and sodomites. But you see, I want to preach something to you that's going to help you. I want to preach something to you that's going to change you. And so that means it's got to be on our level, Brother Ralph. Things that we do, the way that we live. A lot of times when we hear the Word of God, either in song or in message or in a Sunday school lesson, when we hear it, we're so familiar with it that we just turn our listening off. Say, I've heard it before. I've heard it before. It's just the same old message. It's the same old truth. I've heard it before. Let me tell you something. When you do that, you've wrote Ichabod over your spiritual life. When you do that, the day, the day that we dismiss truth out of our life is the day that there is no hope for our spiritual walk. And when we get to the place where we say, I know it all. How many of you have had teenagers before? You remember that time in their life, don't you? You remember that time in their life? I know it all. I know. And it's amazing how much they learn from about like 14 to 16. Isn't that phenomenal? Schools are really doing a good job, aren't they? Because they learn so much from about 14 to 16. And you start to tell them something and they say, I know. Mom, I know. Dad, I know. I know, I know, I know, I know. Well, the truth is they don't know. They just like to think they know. You know, some of the, some of the darkest and gravest mistakes that kids make a lot of times are between those years, 14, 16 years old, 17, 18 years old. Some of the greatest mistakes I made in my life were during that time. You know why? Because they think they know. They think they know. You've heard what the old fella said where he said, you know, when I left uh, home, I knew everything. I knew more than my daddy. And after I'd been gone for a couple of years, it amazed me how much my daddy had learned. <laughs> no, it's not that the daddy had learned anything. It's that that son had learned that he really didn't have it all figured out. That what he thought he knew, he didn't know. But the familiarity had bred contempt. And he shut the door to hearing the truth that his parents were trying to give him. They dismissed the Word of God. But notice the second thing that they did. They said, in the mighty works that He hath done, they discounted the work of God. I worry about people that when they hear people getting saved, they're critical and skeptical. Now, don't misunderstand me. I understand there's a lot of false professions in this day that we live in. And there's a lot of this, what we would call easy believism, this idea that a person doesn't have to be under the conviction of God, that they don't have to understand a single thing, that you can just go and walk them for, through a prayer that they don't mean, that they don't understand, and that that means that they're sad. I understand there's a lot of false professions this day that we live in. But let me tell you something. When God's doing a genuine work, we ought to be on board and we ought to be excited. I mean, it ought to thrill us. And you know, it bothers me when God can be doing a work... And some of us look at it and go, meh, not interested. Not interested. I mean, listen, it, 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 I even as a pastor, I have to be careful. Because sometimes it's easy to measure ministry by counting noses and looking for decisions. 
And I have to be careful that I don't miss the things that God is doing in people's lives and helping them grow and helping them uh, reach higher levels for Jesus Christ. Because it's easy sometimes to get so familiar with it that you just think, oh well, so what? Good for them. When we get to the place that we're judgmental of the work of God, we get to the place where the work of God does not excite us. When we get to the place that we can hear of someone getting saved and, don't, and it don't tug on something inside of us, we've gotten too familiar. We've gotten too familiar. Listen, if heaven can rejoice over one sinner coming to righteousness, God help us when we can't rejoice over one sinner coming to righteousness. We see that they discounted the work of God. But I want you to notice, not only did they discount the work of God, but look a little closer at what they say here. They said, whence hath this man these things and these mighty works? Look at verse number 3. They said, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? Now stop and think about the dynamic of what's taking place here. This is the son of God. Am I right? You believe he's the Son of God? I know we're all sleepy and tired. I, I get that. And, and we're going to, if you're already asleep, just stay asleep. But those of you that are still awake, stick with me now. I mean, he's the Son of God. He's God incarnate. He is the Messiah, the promised one. He's the one that has left glory to go to a gory death. He's the one that has left the palaces for the manger. I mean, this is the Son of God. But you know what they said when they saw him? They said, oh, it's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. It's just the carpenter. It's just the son of Joseph, Mary. It's just Jesus. You know what some of us said this morning? We said, it's just church. It's just church. It's just, just another preaching service. It's just church. Let me tell you what God feels about church. The Bible says of the church that Christ loved it so much that He gave Himself for it. Church, if, uh, if you got saved, chances are it was in a church house. It don't have to be in a church house. I was in my bedroom when I got saved. But most people that get saved, most of them get saved in a church house. A lot of us, if we were saved when we met our spouse, we met them at church. A lot of us, we, we've seen God do magnificent things. A lot of us, if you've got children that are saved, chances are they're saved in a church house. I mean, imagine where your life would be if not for the house of God and the things of God. What about the Word of God? It was the Word of God that you were born again of. It's the Word of God that convicted you, that showed you your need of Calvary. It was the Word of God that comforted you and encouraged you when you were down and depressed. It was the Word of God that humbled you and abased you when you were proud and haughty. And how dare we say, it's just the Word of God. It's just the Word of God. That's all it is. Just another message. Just the Word of God. But you know, that's our attitude a lot of times towards the Son of God. Prayer time? It's just Jesus. Study my Bible? It's just Jesus. Go to church? It's just Jesus. Go to Sunday school? It's just Jesus. No, we wouldn't say it that way. But that's what we are saying when we live and act the way that we do in apathy against those things. It causes us to devalue the Son of God. He ought to be precious to us. He ought to be the most precious thing to us. He ought to have, as the book of Colossians says, not just prominence in our life, He ought to have preeminence in our life. 
not just important, the most important. And yet most of us, when it comes to the things of God, we look at it and say, it's, it's just Jesus. Just church. Hey, just mid- midweek prayer service. That's all it is. Just Wednesday nights. Just a handful there. Just a handful in that upper room, Brother Ralph. Just a handful. Just a few. You say, preacher, you're beating on No, I'm not beating on you. I'm trying to get you to understand that there's a danger in this familiarity that we have. I mean, if I wanted to beat you up, I'd call you names or something, amen? You know I'm more creative than just preaching at you. I'm trying to get you to understand that there is a, an inherent danger in our familiarity with the things of God. It's like that with anything. How many of you could tell stories about marriages that fell apart because of familiarity? Started to take the wife or take the husband for granted. That person that at one time in your life you would have killed over, you would have done anything for, all of a sudden you're not looking at them anymore, you're looking at someone else. You know what Christ, you know what Christ says to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation? He says, thou hast left thy first love. What happened? Familiarity happened. At first love, it just wasn't that important anymore. There was a time, some of you, there was a time when you got saved, there wasn't a question where you was going to be on Sunday or Wednesday. Didn't even talk about it. One of the greatest things ever in my life, one of the things that I owe more of my life to than anything else, is that growing up, there was never a question in our home where we were going to be on the Lord's Day. It was never discussed. It was never debated. We had no say in it. Hey, we had no say in it. Some of us think it's child abuse to take our kids to church. They'll be all right. Oh, they may gripe and moan and complain about it. Sure, yeah. Yeah, just let them die and go to hell. That'll be better. There was no no discussion about it when I was growing up. No discussion about where we would be. Can I say to you that to this day, I rise up and I call my mommy and daddy blessed for it. I bless their name for keeping us in the house of God. But you know, it's just church. That's all. There's a time when you would have crawled over cut glass to get to the house of God. What happened? What happened to you? Familiarity happened to you. That's what happened. As it happens to me, as it happens to all of us. We better be careful about familiarity. We see not only the return of the Savior and the response of the people, but we see the retiring of the Savior. Now, when I speak of retiring, of course, I don't mean that he uh, quit working in people's lives, but what I mean is he quit working in Nazareth. Look what happens. He speaks of three different things. The first thing he does is he speaks uh, in this passage of the origin of the problem. He says, a prophet is not without what? Honor. Honor. Now, it's interesting to me that I think sometimes we miss the truth of this passage because this is the Son of God. And sometimes we look at it and we say, well, uh, you know, he's the Son of God, uh, so he was due honor and do these things. But can I say to you that the problem was not that he was the Son of God. The problem was that they saw him as the Son of Joseph. And they missed this truth, that it was less about the messenger than it was about the message. They missed what God was trying to say because of who was saying it. I'm going to be honest with you, I'm guilty of that in my life. I'm guilty of it. I'm guilty at times when God's trying to speak to me through someone. But I'm so familiar with them that I just dismiss it. I just look at it and I say, well, if they're nothing special, then what they say isn't anything special. 
And that's what they did with Jesus. They said they did not honor him. That's what Christ said. They didn't honor. What is honor? Honor is reverence and respect. And let me tell you something. False reverence will not survive familiarity. Only a reverence born out of an understanding of holiness and of who God is will bear the storm of familiarity. Some of us respect the house of God because we was raised that way. That's good, but that won't be sufficient. Some of us respect the house of God because we come from a generation when that was common. That's good, but that's not enough. Some of us respect the house of God because people that we love go there. That's good, but that won't cut it. Let me tell you the kind of respect that we have for the house of God that will weather any storm. It's a respect founded in the righteousness and holiness of God. Until you see Jesus for who He is, none of it's going to mean much to you. It's always going to be about the person singing, about the person preaching, about the person teaching, until you see that it's not about any of them. It's about the Son of God. I heard a story, and I'll share it with you, of a man that was a Christian, and he had a friend who was also a Christian, and uh, that person had gone and visited a different church. They were neighbors, and he asked this man, whenever he saw him, he said, Did you enjoy going to church and going to worship the Lord? He said, Yeah, I enjoyed going to worship this morning. It was okay. He said, I got there with the friend that had invited me, and the regular uh, Sunday school teacher was sick, and so they had someone else do it, and it wasn't that great. And I got into the service, and the person that sang the special was a little shaky and a little off-key, but it was okay. And the pastor was out of town at a missions uh, conference, and so there was a substitute preacher that got up, and his message was all right. So I guess you could say it was okay. It was an all right time of worship. The man looked at his neighbor and said, The fact is, you didn't go to worship this morning, did you? If you had gone to worship, you wouldn't have seen a substitute Sunday school teacher. You would have seen the Jesus that they were talking about. You wouldn't have heard the off notes of the person singing. You would have heard the melodies of the glorious Son of God they were singing about. You wouldn't have cared that there was a guest preacher. You would have just been excited to be hearing about your Savior. You didn't go to worship. You went to criticize. And do you know that sometimes we just get so familiar that we take it for granted. We don't give it the reverence and the honor that it deserves. I'm going to make a statement to you right here, and I hope you understand what I'm saying. I'm not worthy of any honor or any respect. None. None. The singers that get up and sing, they're not worthy of any honor or any respect. People that take up offerings or teach a Sunday school class, the people that testify, we're not worthy of anything, Brother Ralph. Not a thing. But our Jesus is worthy of everything. He's worthy of it. He's worthy of it. And when it becomes about everything else instead of about Him... That's when we shut our ears off to the truths that God is trying to teach us. We see the origin of the problem, but we see the obstacle that prevents. It says that he marveled at their unbelief. Unbelief. Say, so why didn't they have any belief? Well, you see, they didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was. So they didn't think very much about him. If they had believed that they really were listening to the Son of God, you remember I said a reverence that's founded in the holiness and righteousness of God is the only thing that will sustain the storm of familiarity. If they had believed that He was who He said He was, they wouldn't have had any contempt for Him. And you know, it's indicative of us when we take for granted Jesus Christ. It's indicative to us 
that we do not believe that He is who He says He is. Now you say, oh, wait a minute, preacher, are you saying that I'm not saved? No, that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm saying is this, if you really thought He was as great as He says He is, you wouldn't take Him for granted like we all do, all of us. I wouldn't take Him for granted like I do. I wouldn't take the house of God for granted like I do. I wouldn't take the singing for granted. I wouldn't take the Sunday school lessons for granted. I wouldn't take the fellowship. I wouldn't take the prayer for granted. I wouldn't take any of it for granted if I really believed He was as wonderful as the Bible says He is. Finally, I want you to notice, and I'm done, the opportunity that passed. Went around about the village. It says the only thing he could do there was lay his hands on a few sick folk. That's all he could do. He wanted to do so much more. But their familiarity prevented him from working and moving. So he went to the villages, roundabout teaching. You know, it actually says in Luke's account that they were so filled with wrath that they took him out to a hillside to push him off the edge and to kill him. You ever wonder how it is that people wind up so bitter with church? I've seen it. I've seen people that at one time were on fire for God and were pillars in their church get to the place where they hated it so bad they wouldn't even drive by the front of a church house. How'd that happen? How'd that happen? They got so familiar it got to be about any and everything else and not about Jesus Christ, and they grew to hate it. Let me tell you, this thing that we're doing, you won't do it unless you, unless you love Jesus Christ. It's not easy to serve God. I mean, if we want to be one of these churches that don't do nothing but meet and shout and go home and never try to win people to Christ and never try to live right and never try to make an impact, we could do that. But if we're going to do the right thing, you're going to have to love Jesus to be a part of it. Because you won't stick in if you don't. It'll get too much. It'll burn you out. It'll get you frustrated. It'll cause you to give up. If it's not about Jesus, it's going to be too hard to do it if it's not about Jesus. It's got to be about Him if we're going to stick it in, if we're going to stay the course. They took and they wanted to thrust Him out. And you know what? They said, we don't want you. He said, okay. If you don't want me, you won't have me. And some of us are guilty in our lives of looking at the Son of God and saying, you know, I'm tired of you telling me what I'm doing wrong. Or we've looked at the Word of God and said, you know, I'm tired of all the rules. I'm tired of all the regulations. It's interesting to me. You know what it says in Luke's account? And I'm done with this. I said that four or five times, but maybe I mean it. And this phrase stuck out to me when I read it. It says, after he read in Isaiah, it says, it says he closed the book. It says it deliberately. It doesn't just say it incidentally. It could have gone on and not mentioned anything about that. And I don't guess it would have changed heaven and hell. And it was told to us on a purpose. He closed the book. You know what he did? He looked at them and he began to condemn them. You know why I think he closed the book? You know why I think the Bible's careful to tell us that? I think it's indicative of spiritually what happened in their lives. Because they just saw Jesus the carpenter and not Jesus the Son of God, the Word of God was closed to them. Jesus said you wouldn't listen to it anyway. He closed the book. I wonder if maybe there's some of us that we've gotten so familiar with the things of God that God's closed the book. And it's just boring and it's just bland and it's just a burden. It's just an obligation we fulfill. Just what's expected of us. Can I say to you tonight that you can get unfamiliar with Jesus Christ again. You can value Him again. You can see Him as precious again. If you'll only allow Him to stir up 
Or you know what? You know what the book of Zechariah says? Plow up the fallow ground. All right. Opening your Bibles tonight to the book of Mark, chapter number six. Mark, chapter number six. This morning we were in Mark, chapter number five, and we saw what God had done in the life of a man that we now call the maniac of Gadara. And uh, we saw God's miraculous power, but tragically, we saw that the Gadarenes, the people of Gadara, when they had a choice between the swine or the Savior, they prayed Him to depart out of their coasts. Tonight, I want to preach to you on another group of people uh, that equally as tragic had trouble uh, listening to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, I hope this is a blessing and a help to you this evening. I'm going to try to preach quick. And uh, I hope the Lord will use it in your heart and in your life. Mark chapter number 6, I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. Read just a few verses here. The Word of God says, And he went out from thence and came into his own country. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. Many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him? that even such mighty works are wrought by His hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? And are not His sisters here with us? And they were offended at Him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could do there, oh, this, this troubles me. And he could do there, he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. Let's pray together tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you've done in our hearts and lives. I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us in a particular way. Thank you for the service this morning, the way that you helped me and encouraged me, Lord, and dealt with me, and I trust with many others as well. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for Calvary. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Notice again with me, verse number 4, Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. Now this morning we studied about the Gadarenes and how that they, when faced with the magnificent power of God in the life of this maniac that was hopeless and helpless, uh, that they had seen the power of God. But there was a problem. Jesus, when He ran out the devils, He also ran out their swine, which didn't belong there in the first place anyway. They as Jews, according to Leviticus chapter number 11, uh, weren't uh, supposed to be eating swine. They weren't supposed to be touching swine. They weren't supposed to be anywhere near swine. And uh, so uh, what did Christ do? He ran the sin out of their lives, and that upset them. They had a choice. Do we want our swine, or we might say our sin, or do we want the Son of God in our midst? You know, friend, that's the choice you and I have today. Do we want our sin more than we want the Son of God in our lives? Do we want our sin more than we want the power of God in our lives? More than, hey, do we want our sin more than we want revival? Do we want our sin more than we want to see souls saved? You know, there's a lot of folks, it's not that they don't want to see revival. It's not that they don't want to see souls saved. It's not that they don't want Christ in their life. They just don't want that more than they want their sin. And so they stay in the same shape, in the same situation, Sunday after Sunday, month after month, year after year, and sad to say it, but decade after decade, because they love their sin too much. 
But here in Mark chapter 6, we find a different group of people. Jesus goes back to Nazareth. And you would think that he would receive the hero's welcome, wouldn't you? Here he's been uh, going around the entire countryside. He's been healing. He's been working. He's been making known uh, that he is the Messiah which was prophesied to come. You would think that if there was any group of people that would give him a warm welcome home, you'd think it'd be in his hometown, in his home country, amongst his own kin. But the Bible says in verse number 4 that a prophet is not without honor. In other words, he has honor everywhere he goes but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. I want to preach to you this evening on the danger of familiarity. You know, the old saying goes, familiarity breeds what? Contempt. You know that there is nothing wrong with being no stranger to the house of God. We ought to be in the house of God. We ought to be faithful. We ought to be faithful to the Word of God. We ought to be faithful in our prayer life. We ought to be faithful in witnessing. We ought to be faithful in uh, giving. We ought to be faithful in every fast of our life. The Bible says it's required in a steward. It's not recommended in a steward. It's required in a steward that a man be found faithful. We ought to be faithful. Do you know, even in our faithfulness, there's a danger. You find it in the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. You find that one of the sons came, the younger son, and he said, I want my inheritance. I want to live my life my way. And so his father divided unto him his inheritance. The Bible says he went into a far country and he spent it all on riotous living. He went and lived what uh, the world would call the good life. He blew every dime that his daddy gave him, wound up in the hog pen. And people have said he wound up eating the hog's food. No, he didn't wind up eating the hog's food. The Bible says he fain would have filled his belly with the husk of the swine. He didn't even have enough money to buy the, the husk of the swine. He had nothing to his name. He had been left hopeless and helpless and abandoned by the world. But do you know that there was more hope for him than there was for the other brother? Because there was an older brother, Luke chapter 15 says, who had stayed home. And he had stayed home. But listen, even being at home, we find that his heart had wandered far. And so the brother comes home. We know the story, friend. We've heard it. We've preached it. We've sang about it. We've taught it. He's coming down the road. The father's standing there. I don't know if they had front porches back then, but if there did, that's where he was. And he was looking down the driveway. He seen him coming, and he ran to him. And uh, the Bible says fell on him and kissed his neck, put a ring on his finger, put a robe on his shoulders, uh, put new shoes on his feet, slayed the fatted calf. You say, how'd they have a fatted calf? He is fattening up a calf for when that son came home. Can I say to you, it, listen, it's discouraging when you've got loved ones or friends or family members or co-workers that you're praying for, but you just keep fattening up the calf and praying because one of these days God will get a hold of them. That's what we see happen in this young man's life. The Bible says that he comes home and uh, he uh, tries to say his plan. <laughs> you know, I like it when God interrupts our plan. He says, well, I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell my daddy that I'm no longer worthy to be called a son. I'll just be a servant and I'll live in the servant's quarters. You know, the daddy, he couldn't even get that out because the daddy was kissing him too much. He couldn't even get that out before the Lord had already, or before his father had put a robe on him and put a ring on him. That's just how God is, you know. Sometimes we think we're going to have to do all this penance and we're going to have to suffer all this. And I'm thankful. Hey, there are times that we get chastised for our sin. More often than not, can I say that the Lord has met me in the driveway uh, when it finally I came to myself and I decided I wanted to come to God. I thought I was going to have to suffer through this. I had made my bed and thought I was going to have to lie in it. And I've had to do that sometimes, but uh, more times in that, God has met me and said, no, I'm going to show you grace and I'm going to get you out of the mess that you've got yourself in. The older brother of the Bible says uh, that he was angry and he was bitter and he was jealous. 
being at home is not necessarily a guarantee that your heart will be guarded. We find that these that were closest as far as worldly or temporal relations, those that were closest to our Lord, were the ones with whom He had the least audience with. And there's a real danger. You know, we come into the house of God and we hear the Word of God preached. We hear the songs sung. You maybe go into your study uh, area at home and you open your Bible and you begin to read it. You go into your prayer closet, wherever that is, whatever it is, and you begin to pray. There's real danger sometimes that we become so familiar with it that it just becomes habit and it quits being holy. We find in this passage, I'm just going to give it to you as quick as I know how. I want us to notice three things. The first thing we see is the return of the Savior. Here in verse number 1, uh, the first part of it, we see Him coming home. It says, and we went out from thence and came into His own country. So He's coming home. He's coming to a place that is familiar to Him and that is familiar with Him. And uh, He's coming to a group of people that know Him. And can I say that just because we know Christ as our Savior, that does not mean there is not a risk of our lives winding, uh, uh, winding up messed up because we've gotten out into sin. Now, I'm thankful we can never lose our salvation. Let me say that again. I'm thankful we can never lose our salvation. I'm thankful it's not our salvation, it's His salvation. I'm thankful if we put our faith in Him, He's got a hold of us. I'm not holding on to Him. There's plenty of times when I'm trying to hold on to Him, but there's plenty of times when I let go of Him too, and I'm thankful He never lets go of me. And I'm thankful we can't lose our salvation. Uh, But can I say to you that there is a sense in which we lose the power and presence of God in our life. Lose our fellowship, lose our joy. Uh, there, there's, you know, you know why the Christian life isn't fun to most people because they're not really living it. They're they're trying to look it, but they're not living it. And they've got the outward appearance, but they don't have the inward joy because they don't have the heavenward fellowship. And so they're miserable in the Christian life. They see it as a bunch of rules. Friend, when you give your heart to Christ, when you go whole hog in for Jesus Christ, you'll find it's not rules, it's not regulation, it's liberty. And you'll find that all those things that, uh, that you wanted to do, God will change your want to about them. I read a quote, you know, my wife went to that meeting up in Kentucky, at ladies' meeting, and I was looking through some of her notes, and there was a note that stuck out to me, and it said that if your ways please the Lord, you can do as you please. And, you know, a lot of times the reason we think that God has so many restrictions and things upon our life is because our desires are so carnal and worldly. We get our joy doing what the world does and then wonder why God has a problem with it. He comes to His own country, His own place, His own area. We see His coming home. But I want you to notice not only His coming home, notice His company. The Bible says, and His disciples followed Him. So we find that even though He was coming to a group of people that had grown familiar with Him, that there was a group of people that was following Him. And can I say to you that uh, sometimes we get in the habit of looking at other Christians and thinking, well, I wonder why I'm not as happy as them. I wonder why I am not, I don't have the power of God in my life the way that they do. I wonder why their prayer calls it seems fruitful and mine doesn't. I wonder why they can understand the Word of God and why I can't. And could I say a lot of times it's because we've allowed familiarity uh, to soil our relationship with Jesus Christ. There was a group, <laughs> I, I don't know how to put it other than this. The people in Nazareth, they may, in Nazareth, they may have not been impressed with Jesus, but there was a group that was. Can I say to you that Jesus, if He don't mean much to you tonight, it ain't His problem, it's your problem, because there's a group that He means an awful lot to. 
And if He don't thrill your soul tonight, and you may say, oh, preacher, that's judgmental. Hey, I go through times in my life when I'm not where I need to be. When I preach, people say, well, if you point, you're pointing four back at you. I wish I could point eight back at me. Because the fact of the matter is, I'm just as guilty of it as you are guilty of it. But, you know, a lot of times we get to thinking that Jesus is just not that impressive. He's kind of boring. We're tired of living the Christian life. Do you know when that happens, the problem is not Him. The problem is us. There is a group here that gets excited about Jesus Christ. There is a group. Listen, we may not rejoice when folks get saved, but the angels are rejoicing. We may not get excited when we see people come to an altar. Oh, but heaven gets excited when they see someone go to an altar. We may not get excited over the singing, or we may not get excited over the preaching. But don't think for one moment it's because there's nothing to get excited over. Listen, if we had even the simplest message or the simplest song, given with the, the meanest and most lowly talent, if it's about Jesus Christ, it's worth getting excited over. I mean, it's not about, listen, it's not about the presentation. It's about the content. It's not about the skill. It's about the Savior. And I'm trying to say to you tonight that though there was a crowd that when they saw Jesus, they just said, oh, it's just Jesus again. There was another crowd that was willing to follow Him everywhere He went. We see the company. But then I want you to notice the custom. Look what it says down in verse number 2. The Bible says, And when the Sabbath day was come, He began to teach in the synagogue, And many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this, which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? You know what it says in Luke's account of this? In Luke chapter 4 and verse number 16, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Jesus was doing something that was customary to him. You know what that means? We use that term customary a lot. What it means is something that someone endeavors in on a consistent basis. In other words, this was routine. But for Jesus, it wasn't just routine. And could I say to you tonight that church life don't have to be boring. Church life don't have to be boring when it becomes not about the church, but about the head of the church. Church life, listen, your prayer life don't have to be boring when it becomes not just vain repetitions of words to a man that you have the opinion of that children have of Santa Claus, but when it becomes communion with a thrice holy God that hears and listens, it can be custom without being boring. This was something that Christ did all the time. You know what some of us think? I'm I'm just being honest now. Some preachers won't be honest with you, but I'm going to be honest with you. There were some of you that woke up this morning and said, well, I guess I'll go to church again. And you woke up tonight. You say, woke up? Yeah, you took a nap like I did. And say, well, I guess I'll go to church again. Let me tell you something. That which we take so much for granted, there's people in hushed houses through secret words giving instructions one to another of a meeting place in other countries where they can meet under persecution, under threat of their life being taken away for the privilege of what we got to get in our car and drive here to do openly before the entire world. I mean, we ought to be appreciative of the liberty that we have. We ought not take for granted. There may come a day, and I think there is a day approaching in this country, when they'll padlock places like Wall Ridge Baptist Church, where they'll lock preachers like me up, where they'll lock soul winners up, where they'll uh, lock Sunday school teachers up. I think we're coming to a day in this country when it won't be as easy as getting in your car and just driving to church. Just because it's custom, that doesn't mean it has to be boring. 
And we find that he was doing what his custom was. So we see the return of the Savior. Now, I want you to notice the response of the people. Now, if you read Luke's account, you get a little bit more fuller details about this. We're not going to take the time to do that. But I want you to notice four things that this familiarity caused them to do. And you can see it in the words that they use. Look at the end of verse number 2. Now, the Bible says in Luke's account that he stands up and he speaks about a passage in the book of Isaiah that speaks of, the, of uh, you know, of wounds being bound up, of the blind having their eyes open, of the lame being raised to walk, and of the poor having the gospel preached to them. And that all sounded good to them. You know, they liked that. That sounded good. They liked to hear that. But then the Bible says that Jesus uh, ceased from speaking those words. He closed the book and he looked around and he gave them a story. He said, you know, in the Old Testament that there were many widows in the days uh, of Elias. But God didn't send Elias to any of them save one, a widow of a city by the name of Sarepta, who was a Gentile. And what he's saying to them is this. He's saying, you know, there's lots of folks in Israel that need the Messiah. But sad to say, you're going to reject him. And it's going to be the Gentiles whom the gospel is going to go to. You know, that's happened today. The Bible says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And the Jews, for the most part, have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Christianity is a Gentile thing today. That's not to say a Jew can't get saved, but where's the gospel preached? Is there a stronger gospel witness in Jerusalem or in Knoxville, Tennessee today? Is there a stronger uh, gospel witness uh, in Palestine or in the United States of America today? And we could say that at one time about Europe. We could say it about Greece, about plenty of Gentile nations. And what Christ is saying, in other words, is this. He's saying God wants to do a work, but God can't do a work because you've hardened your hearts. And when that happened, the Bible says that they were filled with wrath and they got offended. You know, familiarity breeds what? Contempt. I want you to notice four things that they did as a result of this familiarity. Notice the first thing in verse number 2. Look what they say. It says, And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? Now, what are they saying when they say these things? Well, it goes on to say this wisdom. But there as he's teaching in the uh, synagogue, they're saying, Where did he get the power and authority to say what he's saying? They were offended, not at what he had done, but at what he had said. What are they saying here? First off, familiarity can cause us to dismiss the Word of God. Listen carefully to what I'm saying tonight. It can cause us to treat the Word of God with contempt. You know that many times God has something He's trying to say to us, but uh, when we open our Bibles and read it, you know what we're thinking? Oh, I know all that. And I'm going to try. And listen, you... you it, If you want to believe I'm on a soapbox, believe it tonight. But I'm not. I'm just trying to preach what the Lord's given me. But you know, even when we sit in church sometimes, and I know I'm the preacher, and I know you can look at this as I'm just trying to tout me. God knows my heart better than I do and knows I'm not. But a lot of times when we sit in a church house and we hear a sermon preached, you know what we think? I've heard that before. Well, that's not for me. A lot of times when we hear the word, listen, we'll go a lot further when we realize that it's not about the messenger, it's about the message. We'll get a lot farther when we realize it's not about whoever's standing behind that pulpit, it's about who's seated at the right hand of the Father. We'll get a lot farther when we uh, start looking for the message instead of the mistake. And we find that the first thing that it calls them to do is to say about what he's saying, where'd that come from? Where'd this wisdom that he's got come from? 
In other words, they were saying, and they were saying this about what he had said about them. By the way, do you know that preaching about generalities does not offend anyone? I can preach all day about people that aren't in this room, and it won't offend a single person. But you know, when we start to preach about sin that's right down where we're at and what we're doing, that's when we start getting a little tight about it. That's when we start getting upset and getting offended. You see, that's why I don't preach a lot of messages against sodomy. Because I would hope, and we don't know in this day that we live in, but I would hope that nobody in here is struggling with it. And it's not that I'm not against sodomy. I'm as against sodomy as the Bible is against sodomy and sodomites. But you see, I want to preach something to you that's going to help you. I want to preach something to you that's going to change you. And so that means it's got to be on our level, Brother Ralph. Things that we do, the way that we live. A lot of times when we hear the Word of God, either in song or in message or in a Sunday school lesson, when we hear it, we're so familiar with it that we just turn our listening off. Say, I've heard it before. I've heard it before. It's just the same old message. It's the same old truth. I've heard it before. Let me tell you something. When you do that, you've wrote Ichabod over your spiritual life. When you do that, the day, the day that we dismiss truth out of our life is the day that there is no hope for our spiritual walk. And when we get to the place where we say, I know it all. How many of you have had teenagers before? You remember that time in their life, don't you? You remember that time in their life? I know it all. I know. And it's amazing how much they learn from about like 14 to 16. Isn't that phenomenal? Schools are really doing a good job, aren't they? Because they learn so much from about 14 to 16. And you start to tell them something and they say, I know, Mom, I know. Dad, I know. I know, I know, I know, I know. Well, the truth is they don't know. They just like to think they know. You know, some of the, some of the darkest and gravest mistakes that kids make a lot of times are between those years, 14, 16 years old, 17, 18 years old. Some of the greatest mistakes I made in my life were during that time. You know why? Because they think they know. They think they know. You've heard what the old fella said where he said, you know, when I left uh, home, I knew everything. I knew more than my daddy. And after I'd been gone for a couple years, it amazed me how much my daddy had learned. No, it's not that the daddy had learned anything. It's that that son had learned that he really didn't have it all figured out. What he thought he knew, he didn't know. But the familiarity had bred contempt. And he shut the door to hearing the truth that his parents were trying to give him. They dismissed the Word of God. But notice the second thing that they did. They said, in the mighty works that he hath done, they discounted the work of God. I worry about people that when they hear people getting saved, they're critical and skeptical. Now, don't misunderstand me. I understand there's a lot of false professions in this day that we live in. And there's a lot of this, what we would call easy believism, this idea that a person doesn't have to be under the conviction of God, that they don't have to understand a single thing, that you can just go and walk them through a prayer that they don't mean, that they don't understand, and that that means that they're sad. I understand there's a lot of false professions this day that we live in. But let me tell you something. When God's doing a genuine work, we ought to be on board and we ought to be excited. I mean, it ought to thrill us. And you know, it bothers me when God can be doing a work... And some of us look at it and go, meh, not interested. Not interested. I mean, listen, it, 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 I even as a pastor, I have to be careful. Because sometimes it's easy to measure ministry by counting noses and looking for decisions. 
And I have to be careful that I don't miss the things that God is doing in people's lives and helping them grow and helping them uh, reach higher levels for Jesus Christ. Because it's easy sometimes to get so familiar with it that you just think, oh well, so what? Good for them. When we get to the place that we're judgmental of the work of God, we get to the place where the work of God does not excite us, when we get to the place that we can hear of someone getting saved and (laughs) and it don't tug on something inside of us, We've gotten too familiar. We've gotten too familiar. Listen, if heaven can rejoice over one sinner coming to righteousness, God help us when we can't rejoice over one sinner coming to righteousness. We see that they discounted the work of God. But I want you to notice not only did they discount the work of God, but look a little closer at what they say here. They said, whence hath this man these things and these mighty works? Look at verse number 3. They said, is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and of Judah and Simon. Now stop and think about the dynamic of what's taking place here. This is the Son of God. Am I right? Do you believe He's the Son of God? I know we're all sleepy and tired. I, I get that. And, and we're going to, if you're already asleep, just stay asleep. But those of you that are still awake, stick with me now. I mean, He's the Son of God. He's God incarnate. He is the Messiah, the promised one. He's the one that has left glory to go to a gory death. He's the one that has left the palaces for the manger. This is the Son of God. But you know what they said when they saw Him? They said, oh, it's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. It's just the carpenter. It's just the son of Joseph, Mary. It's just Jesus. You know what some of us said this morning? We said, it's just church. It's just church. It's just just another preaching service. It's just church. Let me tell you what God feels about church. The Bible says of the church that Christ loved it so much that He gave Himself for it. Church, if, uh, if you got saved, chances are it was in a church house. It don't have to be in church. I was in my bedroom when I got saved. But most people that get saved, most of them get saved in a church house. A lot of us, if we were saved when we met our spouse, we met them at church. A lot of us, we, we've seen God do magnificent things. A lot of us, if you've got children that are saved, chances are they're saved in a church house. I mean, imagine where your life would be if not for the house of God and the things of God. What about the Word of God? It was the Word of God that you were born again of. It's the Word of God that convicted you, that showed you your need of Calvary. It was the Word of God that comforted you and encouraged you when you were down and depressed. It was the Word of God that humbled you and abased you when you were proud and haughty. And how dare we say, it's just the Word of God. It's just the Word of God. That's all it is. Just another message. Just the Word of God. But you know, that's our attitude a lot of times towards the Son of God. Prayer time... It's just Jesus. Study my Bible. It's just Jesus. Go to church. It's just Jesus. Go to Sunday school. It's just Jesus. No, we wouldn't say it that way. But that's what we are saying when we live and act the way that we do in apathy against those things. It causes us to devalue the Son of God. He ought to be precious to us. He ought to be the most precious thing to us. He ought to have, as the book of Colossians says, not just prominence in our life, He ought to have preeminence in our life. 
Not just important, the most important. And yet most of us, when it comes to the things of God, we look at it and say, it's, it's just Jesus. Just church. Hey, just mid- midweek prayer service. That's all it is. Just Wednesday nights. Just a handful there. Just a handful in that upper room, Brother Ralph. Just a handful. Just a few. You say, preacher, you're beating on No, I'm not beating on you. I'm trying to get you to understand that there's a danger in this familiarity that we have. I mean, if I wanted to beat you up, I'd call you names or something, amen? You know I'm more creative than just preaching at you. I'm trying to get you to understand that there is a, an inherent danger in our familiarity with the things of God. It's like that with anything. How many of you could tell stories about marriages that fell apart because of familiarity? Started to take the wife or take the husband for granted. That person that at one time in your life you would have killed over, you would have done anything for, all of a sudden you're not looking at them anymore, you're looking at someone else. You know what Christ, you know what Christ says to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation? He says, Thou hast left thy first love. What happened? Familiarity happened. At first love, it just wasn't that important anymore. There was a time, some of you, there was a time when you got saved, there wasn't a question of where you was going to be on Sunday or Wednesday. Didn't even talk about it. I, One of the greatest things ever in my life, one of the things that I owe more of my life to than anything else, is that growing up, there was never a question in our home where we were going to be on the Lord's Day. It was never discussed. It was never debated. We had no say in it. Hey, we had no say in it. Some of us think it's child abuse to take our kids to church. They'll be all right. Oh, they may gripe and moan and complain about it. Sure, yeah. Yeah, just let them die and go to hell. That'll be better. There was no no discussion about it when I was growing up. No discussion about where we would be. Can I say to you that to this day, I rise up and I call my mommy and daddy blessed for it. I bless their name for keeping us in the house of God. But you know, it's just church. That's all. There's a time when you would have crawled over cut glass to get to the house of God. What happened? What happened to you? Familiarity happened to you. That's what happened. As it happens to me, as it happens to all of us. We better be careful about familiarity. We see not only the return of the Savior and the response of the people, but we see the retiring of the Savior. Now, when I speak of retiring, of course, I don't mean that he uh, quit working in people's lives, but what I mean is he quit working in Nazareth. Look what happens. He speaks of three different things. The first thing he does is he speaks uh, in this passage of the origin of the problem. He says, a prophet is not without what? Honor. Honor. Now, it's interesting to me that I think sometimes we miss the truth of this passage because this is the Son of God. And sometimes we look at it and we say, well, uh, you know, he's the Son of God, uh, so he was due honor and do these things. But can I say to you that the problem was not that he was the Son of God. The problem was that they saw him as the son of Joseph. And they missed this truth, that it was less about the messenger than it was about the message. They missed what God was trying to say because of who was saying it. I'm going to be honest with you, I'm guilty of that in my life. I'm guilty of it. I'm guilty at times when God's trying to speak to me through someone. But I'm so familiar with them that I just dismiss it. I just look at it and I say, well, if they're nothing special, then what they say isn't anything special. 
And that's what they did with Jesus. They said they did not honor Him. That's what Christ said. They didn't honor. What is honor? Honor is reverence and respect. And let me tell you something. False reverence will not survive familiarity. Only a reverence born out of an understanding of holiness and of who God is will bear the storm of familiarity. Some of us respect the house of God because we was raised that way. That's good, but that won't be sufficient. Some of us respect the house of God because we come from a generation when that was common. That's good, but that's not enough. Some of us respect the house of God because people that we love go there. That's good, but that won't cut it. Let me tell you the kind of respect that we have for the house of God that will weather any storm. It's a respect founded in the righteousness and holiness of God. Until you see Jesus for who He is, none of it's going to mean much to you. It's always going to be about the person singing, about the person preaching, about the person teaching, until you see that it's not about any of them. It's about the Son of God. I heard a story, and I'll share it with you, of a man that was a Christian, and he had a friend who was also a Christian, and uh, that person had gone and visited a different church. They were neighbors, and he asked this man, whenever he saw him, he said, Did you enjoy going to church and going to worship the Lord? He said, Yeah, I enjoyed going to worship this morning. It was okay. He said, I got there with the friend that had invited me, and the regular uh, Sunday school teacher was sick, and so they had someone else do it, and it wasn't that great. And I got into the service, and the person that sang the special was a little shaky and a little off-key, but it was okay. And the pastor was out of town at a missions uh, conference, and so there was a substitute preacher that got up, and his message was all right. So I guess you could say it was okay. It was an all right time of worship. The man looked at his neighbor and said, The fact is, you didn't go to worship this morning, did you? If you had gone to worship, you wouldn't have seen a substitute Sunday school teacher. You would have seen the Jesus that they were talking about. You wouldn't have heard the off notes of the person singing. You would have heard the melodies of the glorious Son of God they were singing about. You wouldn't have cared that there was a guest preacher. You would have just been excited to be hearing about your Savior. You didn't go to worship. You went to criticize. And do you know that sometimes we just get so familiar that we take it for granted. We don't give it the reverence and the honor that it deserves. I'm going to make a statement to you right here, and I hope you understand what I'm saying. I'm not worthy of any honor or any respect. None. None. The singers that get up and sing, they're not worthy of any honor or any respect. People that take up offerings or teach a Sunday school class, the people that testify, we're not worthy of anything, Brother Ralph. Not a thing. But our Jesus is worthy of everything. He's worthy of it. He's worthy of it. And when it becomes about everything else instead of about Him... That's when we shut our ears off to the truths that God is trying to teach us. We see the origin of the problem, but we see the obstacle that prevents. It says that he marveled at their unbelief. Unbelief. Say, why didn't they have any belief? Well, you see, they didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was. So they didn't think very much about him. If they had believed that they really were listening to the Son of God, you remember I said a reverence that's founded in the holiness and righteousness of God is the only thing that will sustain the storm of familiarity. If they had believed that He was who He said He was, they wouldn't have had any contempt for Him. And you know, it's indicative of us when we take for granted Jesus Christ. It's indicative to us 
that we do not believe that He is who He says He is. Now you say, oh, wait a minute, preacher. Are you saying that I'm not saved? No, that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm saying is this. If you really thought He was as great as He says He is, you wouldn't take Him for granted like we all do. All of us. I wouldn't take Him for granted like I do. I wouldn't take the house of God for granted like I do. I wouldn't take the singing for granted. I wouldn't take the Sunday school lessons for granted. I wouldn't take the fellowship. I wouldn't take the prayer for granted. I wouldn't take any of it for granted if I really believed He was as wonderful as the Bible says He is. Finally, I want you to notice, and I'm done, the opportunity that passed. Went around about the village. It says the only thing he could do there was lay his hands on a few sick folk. That's all he could do. He wanted to do so much more. But their familiarity prevented him from working and moving. So he went to the villages, roundabout teaching. You know, it actually says in Luke's account that they were so filled with wrath that they took him out to a hillside to push him off the edge and to kill him. You ever wonder how it is that people wind up so bitter with church? I've seen it. I've seen people that at one time were on fire for God and were pillars in their church get to the place where they hated it so bad they wouldn't even drive by the front of a church house. How'd that happen? How'd that happen? They got so familiar it got to be about any and everything else and not about Jesus Christ, and they grew to hate it. Let me tell you, this thing that we're doing, you won't do it unless you, unless you love Jesus Christ. It's not easy to serve God. I mean, if we want to be one of these churches that don't do nothing but meet and shout and go home and never try to win people to Christ and never try to live right and never try to make an impact, we could do that. But if we're going to do the right thing, you're going to have to love Jesus to be a part of it. Because you won't stick in if you don't. It'll get too much. It'll burn you out. It'll get you frustrated. It'll cause you to give up. If it's not about Jesus, it's going to be too hard to do it if it's not about Jesus. It's got to be about Him if we're going to stick it in. If we're going to stay the course. They took and they wanted to thrust him out. And you know what? They said, we don't want you. He said, okay. If you don't want me, you won't have me. And some of us are guilty in our lives of looking at the Son of God and saying, you know, I'm tired of you telling me what I'm doing wrong. Or we've looked at the Word of God and said, you know, I'm tired of all the rules. I'm tired of all the regulations. It's interesting to me. You know what it says in Luke's account? And I'm done with this. I said that four or five times, but maybe I mean it. And this phrase stuck out to me when I read it. It says, after he read in Isaiah, it says, says he closed the book. It says it deliberately. It doesn't just say it incidentally. It could have gone on and not mentioned anything about that. And I don't guess it would have changed heaven and hell. And it was told to us on a purpose. He closed the book. You know what he did? He looked at them and he began to condemn them. You know why I think he closed the book? You know why I think the Bible's careful to tell us that? I think it's indicative of spiritually what happened in their lives. Because they just saw Jesus the carpenter and not Jesus the Son of God, the Word of God was closed to them. Jesus said you wouldn't listen to it anyway. He closed the book. I wonder if maybe there's some of us that we've gotten so familiar with the things of God God's closed the book. And it's just boring and it's just bland and it's just a burden. It's just an obligation we fulfill. Just what's expected of us. Can I say to you tonight that you can get unfamiliar with Jesus Christ again. You can value Him again. You can see Him as precious again. If you'll only allow Him to stir up 
Or you know what? You know what the book of Zechariah says? Plow up the fallow ground. If you'll allow them to do that tonight, you can have that first love afresh and anew with Jesus Christ all over again. If you'll allow them to do that tonight, you can have that first love afresh and anew with Jesus Christ all over again.